All right, guys. Well, we're uh, talking about the story of the Old Testament. What is the Old Testament about? And uh, asking the question, what story is it telling? And we've given a number of reasons why we've taken the time to do this every week. I try to give you a little bit of a different reason uh, because I know it's taking time. This is supposed to be a study of the Old Testament and it's our eighth class and we haven't really got to Genesis yet. So uh, that's, that's, that's something. And uh, Yet I think it's worth taking the time to do this uh, because for one thing, many Christians aren't really familiar with the story of the Old Testament. Sometimes we think we're familiar with it because we can say some of the names and we, you know, we were there in Sunday school. But then uh, when you start, start talking a little bit more deeply, you realize, no, I don't think you're understanding what God is doing in the Old Testament, really. And that's a problem because uh, if you don't understand the Old Testament, not only do you not understand the Old Testament, it also means you're not going to understand Jesus very well. And that's a big part of why we're taking all this time to think about the Old Testament, because we want to know the Jesus who actually existed, not just the Jesus that comes from our own imagination or the Jesus of our culture, but the Jesus of of the scripture and the Jesus of history, the Jesus who saves. And the writers of the gospel make clear to us from the very beginning that you're not going to understand Jesus unless you have a little bit of an understanding of the Old Testament. And so if you think about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, the way they tell the story of Jesus, they each begin their story by pointing us back to the story of the Old Testament. Uh, If you think about Matthew, how does Matthew 1 begin? You hear this many, many Christmases, right? Matthew 1 begins with a a genealogy, which is uh, what we would think would be like the most boring way to begin a book. So if you were Matthew's editor, you would be like, you you cannot begin your book with a list of names because you are going to lose people. Most of those names they can't even pronounce. But Matthew begins that way. Because it's like he wants to stand at the door of the New Testament. He's like, you're about to come into the New Testament. Matthew's standing at the door. And he's saying, if you are going to understand what you're going to read here, you're going to have to go back and make sure you understand the story of the Old Testament. Because Jesus is coming to complete the story, that story of the Old Testament. That's his story. And he's coming to complete it. And it's not just Matthew, Mark 1, Mark 1, 1 and 2. Anybody remember how that begins? It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I love those two verses. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet. And again, it's like, go back, go back. And Luke is similar. I've done an introduction to Luke maybe a million times. Every Sunday you come, you're like, oh no, are you seriously going back to Luke 1 again to get us to Luke 8 and 9? But I do that. Because Luke is making an argument and we have to trace the argument. But if you remember the way Luke begins, he begins by bringing in some Old Testament experts and pointing us back to the Old Testament. John as well. Uh, John 1.1, in the beginning. That sounds kind of similar, doesn't it, to something you've heard before uh, from Genesis 1.1. And actually, John, um, John chapter 1 is really, uh, and, and two, is really um, 
has many similarities to the creation account. So we, we have to understand the story of the Old Testament. And today we're going to talk about two parts of the story that are maybe a little less familiar. So we're almost at the end. And we have walked our way through some parts of the story that are kind of familiar, I think. Uh, the beginning, the fall, the promise, and Israel. And that last one might not be uh, quite as familiar, but Israel is certainly an important part of the story. And we're going to think a little again today about how important as we talk about the last two chapters in the Old Testament story, which are definitely not as familiar to most of us, but impact the whole thing in a huge way. In fact, it's one of the most significant problems in the Old Testament and the solution. And I'm talking about exile and restoration. Those are the two chapters of the Old Testament story that we want to talk about now. The Old Testament story goes creation, fall, promise, Israel, exile, exile. Now, uh, when we talk about exile, just in general, what are we talking about? Uh, one dictionary says, Exile is the state of being barred from one's native country, typically for political reasons. So that's good. That's a simple definition. When we talk about exile, we're talking about being kicked out of our country. Another says uh, exile is the mass deportation of a large population group, usually for political purposes. So uh, individuals can go into exile, I guess. But often when you talk about exile, you're thinking of nations or groups. So uh, I don't know how many of you have ever lived outside of your home country. Well, we, I know a couple of you have <laughs> lived outside of the country you were born in. So that's not fair to say your home country, because, but the country you were born in. Who here has lived for a significant period of time outside of the country they were born in? You were in Italy for a while, yeah, and uh, you, got, you guys as well. For most, is it most of your life now that you've lived outside of the country you were born in? Yeah, right. So yeah. Um, it can be exciting if you live outside the country you're born in, at, if you like that kind of thing. It can be a challenge. Um, it can be a challenge for a number of different reasons, but one reason it can be a challenge to live outside the country you were born in is just because how home can get into you. Uh, even places you maybe didn't like that much, you judge other places by there. You can miss it. I was thinking recently, one of the fun things about coming back to the States is being able to watch basketball again because I grew up watching basketball. And when I watch basketball, there's one team I cheer for. And uh, you know, it's the team I cheered for growing up. It's the 76ers. And I haven't watched basketball in maybe 14 years, 15 years until I came back to the States. I haven't lived in Pennsylvania since, you know, for a very long time. But I come back to California, start watching basketball, and I have to root for the 76ers because that's where I'm from. And I can even almost be a little offended when somebody in my family likes the, the Mavericks. But no, just joking, that's, that's, I don't mind. But home is, a, home is a big deal to us in general. And um, it's one thing to choose to live outside of your country. It's, an, it's a whole nother thing to be forced to live somewhere else, to be captured and to be sent into exile. Um, you can see how traumatizing it would be uh, for anyone. It's, 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 it's uh, sort of, it, 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 it's confusing. We even went somewhere recently in a restaurant uh, that was from another culture, and I didn't even know how to order. And I had to call my friend who told me to go to that restaurant. And I'm like, I, 
I know I should just go up, but I'm kind of embarrassed to go up because I feel like I'm going to look like a fool who doesn't know how to even order at a restaurant. But people are doing all these kinds of things, and I don't know what they're doing. Um, and so that's kind of a, a silly illustration, but um, to be captured and sent into exile and to be forced to live in another country and figure everything out would be absolutely traumatizing for almost anyone, but especially for Israel, especially for Israel. And understanding why exile was such a problem for Israel is part of the key to understanding what's going on in your Old Testament. So let's go back. So like this problem of exile, what I'm saying is this problem of exile, it would be a problem just in general. But in the Old Testament, it is like the problem. It's, it's really, it's, it's like the problem in many ways. And uh, so let's think about the first five books of the Bible again, beginning not with Genesis like we normally do, but with Exodus. Because like we said last week, Genesis comes first. But Moses wrote about Genesis uh, after God rescued Israel from Egypt. So he wrote about creation after the Exodus. And so take a minute and think about what happened in the Exodus. You've got this group of people who have lived, they, they've lived in Egypt for about 400 years. So that's, that's a long time. I say I'm American. I'm sure that my uh, ancestors didn't come to America 400 years ago. I've been in America less than that for sure. Um, so they have lived in Egypt for 400 years, and they've prospered in some ways. They've gone from around 70 people or so to thousands and thousands and thousands, but they're enslaved, and they're mistreated, and they're crying out. And we know that God rescues them and takes them out of Egypt. So here they are. They've left their home, which wasn't a good home, uh, and they're this big group of people, and they're at a mountain. When this man named Moses is, uh, who's leading them, um, goes up the mountain. And uh, it's exciting because uh, God's blessed them in leaving Egypt, but it's got to be a little frightening in that you've got thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are out there in a wilderness around a mountain and are basically homeless. So I don't know how much you like camping, um, but not everybody likes camping. And uh, this is, these are thousands and thousands of people that are following Moses um, at a, and they're at a mountain having to basically camp with all their children and all their families. And so they've, they've got to be wondering, because they've just been slaves basically living in another country, they've got to be wondering, uh, who are we? You know, why are we? What, 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 what are we? What are we going to do? Why is this happening? Why is this happening? And what happens is that God shows up and God commissions them. This, is, this was Exodus 19. We talked about it a little last week. But God says, I am the one who rescued you. I'm the one who brought you here. And this is what I'm doing it for. And one thing he says is, I am going to make you into a holy nation. Exodus 19, 6. I'm going to make you into a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so he's saying, you're not just going to be a wandering group of people. I want to make you into a special nation. Now that happens, and you're there, and you really don't know much beyond that. You've got some stories that were told down through the generations, but um, you've got not much more than those stories. You, you, of course, there's what happened to you, what God did, and how God revealed himself, and what you know as a result of that, 
And you've got whatever's going on on the mountain at Mount Sinai where God's entering into this covenant with you and talking about making this home for himself where he's going to live with you, but you don't have much more. And so what do you need? What do you need? You need an explanation. Welcome to the first five books of the Bible. God's like, here you are, this. I want to explain you. I want you to understand you. And so now you're looking at Genesis 1 to 11 and God's talking about the world and specifically showing this huge problem in the world. And what's the problem in the world? Sin, of course, but maybe another way of saying it or consequences of sin in Genesis 1 and 11 is exile, basically. Genesis 1 through 11, the problem of Genesis 1 through 11 is that the the world's gone into exile. So if you think about Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 1 and 2 is about a kingdom. God is establishing a kingdom. He makes a place. He makes a people. His goal for them is to experience his presence and his blessing and for them to act as his representatives and expand that kingdom until it fills the whole world. But they reject that idea and rebel, and Adam and Eve are sent into exile. And so they are cast out of this home that God made for them to enjoy. And as we keep reading Genesis 1 through 11, what happens is that humans keep getting further and further away from the Garden of Eden until they're scattered all over the world, Genesis 11:9, 9. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, why did Moses tell the Israelites that story? Why is he all of a sudden like, you know what? Let me tell you about the beginning of the world and let me tell you about the Tower of Babel. He's telling Israel that story because he's explaining them. He's like, this is why we've been rescued from Egypt. This is why God's making us a nation. He is going to use us to deal with this problem. This is why we are here to deal with this problem of the world being sent into exile. And, so, and, and that's what you see in Genesis 12. And so now you're like, okay, that's why we exist. How are we going to do that? How is God going to use us to do that? And there are obviously different answers to that, but two that come out pretty clearly in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is that God is going to enter into a covenant with us. And a covenant, we're going to talk about that a lot, but that's a specific kind of relationship, a little like a contract, not really like a contract, because it's so relational. Marriage is a great illustration of a covenant. Um, Adoption is another uh, another illustration of a covenant. There wasn't this relationship. Now there is, and there are responsibilities and promises and all that stuff. And he's giving us, so God's entering Israel. Israel's saying, how are we going to do this? How are we going to solve the problem of the world? God's entering into this special kind of relationship with us. And he's going to give us a land. And he's going to give us a place to be a nation and to do all the stuff that he talks about in the covenant. And so one image or idea you get reading these books is of it being like God picking up Israel and setting them in this place And as they obey this covenant blessing, God's going to make that place kind of like the Garden of Eden. His presence is going to be there. He's going to walk there, it even says in Leviticus. He's going to fill it with all of these blessings. And so you think about the way that Israel thought about the land, their home then. Obviously, it was going to be pretty important. 
because it wasn't even just a home. God rescued them, God commissioned them, and God placed them there as part of his great salvation plan. That's how Moses explained what was going on. God is rescuing you from Egypt. He's gonna put you in this special land for the purpose of solving the problem of Genesis 1 to 11. And what happened there was gonna be connected to their relationship with him. You remember that was part of the covenant. You obey, blessing, it's gonna happen. You disobey, curse. And kind of the ultimate curse was exile. That was even kind of the warning of reading the story of the Garden of Eden. <laughs> Adam's like, Moses is like, don't let what happened, what, what happened to Adam happen to you. What happened to Adam? He wouldn't submit to God's law. And so he was sent into exile. And if you don't submit to the covenant, God's going to kick you out of the land and give it to someone else, which is actually how they kind of got into the land in the first place, if you think about it. God was judging the people who lived there. He made that clear and giving it to Israel. So from the beginning of the nation of Israel, them living in the land was significant. It was about something more than just their home. It was about their role in God's great salvation plan and God getting kicked out of the land, having another country come in and take them out of the land was more than just a political problem. It was God enforcing his covenant. He said, if you do this, this happens. You've broken the covenant and this is the result. Now, one of the interesting things about Deuteronomy, which we said last week, is that here Deuteronomy is only the fifth book of the Bible and it's before they even enter the land. And before they even enter the land, Moses expects them to be kicked out of the land. He expects exile. And he tells them, and we saw this, uh, we saw this last week. And some people can be upset get upset and be like, that's not fair that God told them they were going to get kicked out of the land before they entered the land. But what should you do if you get a warning that something bad's going to happen in the future when you do something? That's grace. You, should, you shouldn't do it. It's not that complicated. And then we read the story and what happens? What happens is that God keeps his promises. God sends men who explain what he's doing. And then he sends these uh, prophets who act almost like his lawyers. So when you read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, think of them like lawyers. And basically, if you, this is why it's so important, we're gonna spend a lot of time on the Pentateuch because the rest of the, the, rest of the Old Testament's basically the Pentateuch, <laughs> Pentateuch redo. Because what is going on is the prophets are going back to the covenant. They're like covenant lawyers. And they're going back to the covenant and they're saying, guys, this is the covenant you made with God. And this is what God expects of you and you're not doing it. And this is what's gonna happen if you don't obey the covenant. God's gonna keep his promises to judge and send you into exile. And if you don't repent, that's what's gonna happen. That's what's gonna happen. And of course we know they didn't repent and God did send them into exile. And he did that in stages. So the nation of Israel, the, the high point was like Solomon. And the picture with Solomon, when we finally get to Kings and Chronicles, the picture with Solomon is basically like, like, is this the one? Because Israel is becoming a blessing to the world. They're prospering in many of the ways the Bible promised. And yet Solomon sins. He's not faithful. He actually 
fails to be the kind of king that Deuteronomy said Israel needed. And so as a result of Solomon's sin, Israel ends up being divided into two groups, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And Israel in the north was taken into captivity around 722 BC. And you read about that in 2 Kings 17. So let me turn to 2 Kings 17 and let's read about this, uh, this exile of, of Israel, 2 Kings 17. says, in the 12th year of Ahaz, king of Judea, or Ju- Judah, Hoshea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel, and he reigned nine years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the city of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the king of, of, of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And they, there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that they made, he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. That's, it's, that's actually kind of an important line just for fun. What happens in the Old Testament, you often see this, and you can note this, you become like what you worship. So this is just one illustration of how the Old Testament talks about idolatry, but notice when they talk about what happens to idol worshipers, they'll often um, describe the idol worshiper as becoming like the idol, and you see that here. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshiped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. So you've got to understand just how sad this is. Uh, I know it's maybe a little bit hard, but like for us, we know the whole story, but imagine like as we watch this happen, 
this is the nation that's supposed to be the solution to the problem of the world. <laughs> and so we're watching them become just like the world after God's pleaded with them and pleaded with them and we're seeing them carried away. And so it's almost like we can feel like hope slipping through our fingers. But we have just a little hope left because Judah is still around. But then 200 years later, that hope is stripped away from us when Judah's taken into exile. And that was a process, but the final stage of that process was around 582 BC. And you read about that in Jeremiah chapter 52. But you get an idea of how devastating it was in the book of Lamentations. So turn to Lamentations uh, chapter one. And I just want you to, to kind of hear how godly people thought about their nation being taken into exile. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become, she who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dwelt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her. For the multitude of her transgressions, her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like the deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from the days of old when her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her. Her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honored her despised her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirt. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O oh Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you all who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me when the Lord inflicted, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high, he sent fire. Into my bones, he made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He's left me stunned, faint all the days long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand, they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there's none to comfort her. 
The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I've been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it's like death. They heard my groaning, yet there's no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is faint. And I, that was a long chapter, I know, poetry, but you can feel that as you read through. Exile is a significant, significant issue. Um, and uh, to understand the Old Testament, you kind of have to feel that. And actually, even to start to understand what was going on in the days of Jesus, you have to understand that. Because it would have been difficult for anyone, uh, obviously, but for Israel, it's tied to the, their relationship with God. And so when they see the temple being destroyed and when they see themselves taken out of the land like that, that was like calling into question absolutely everything, everything. Because we know Israel was brought into the world to deal with this huge problem of humanity being sent into exile. So if you think Adam being kicked out of the garden the first time was sad, the second Adam being kicked out of the garden is even sadder. It's like... How, how is this going to be fixed with Israel in exile? And so the question is, what next? Is that how it ends? Is that how it ends? Is this just like the saddest story in the world? And the answer, of course, is no. God raises up prophets who talk about one more chapter, and we could title that chapter Restoration. And so exile is the problem. What's the answer? The prophets explain and almost, this is just so like God. Almost every time in the story that you think it's over, it gets better. So the fall happens, you get the promise of a deliverer. The flood happens, God makes a covenant with the whole world. The Tower of Babel happens, here comes Abraham. Pharaoh is killing God's people, God remembers his covenant, and we get the Exodus. Israel asks for a king, the wrong kind of king, we get the Davidic covenant. So here comes exile. What's going to be next? Restoration. But what does that mean? What does that mean? I want to look at what the prophets told the people to be expecting. Um, starting back with, with, with Moses. So Moses is the one who predicted the exile. But you know what else he promises? A future for Israel. In pretty much the same places he talks about punishment for disobedience, he makes it clear that's not going to be the end. So I look at Leviticus chapter 26, 38 through 44. And again, this is to help you understand the Old Testament, but it's also to help you understand the New. Um, what, what, and God's future plan for, for the world. So Leviticus 26, 38 through 44. 
So you remember in Leviticus 26, God makes the threat of exile if they disobey. But look uh, here, because in the same passage, there's also this means of hope. He says, um, you shall perish among the nations and the land of your enemy shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemy's lands because of their iniquity and also because of the iniquity of their fathers, they shall rot away like them. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me so that I walk contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. But the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbath while it lies desolate without them, and they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they're in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. So walk through that for a minute. There's the curse, removal from the land, captivity, which is shocking, but then what? If, if they confess, what's going to happen? What does Moses say is going to happen? He says the Abraham, Abrahamic covenant is going to come back into action, and it's kind of the same language that he used back when he delivered them from uh, Egypt. You remember how he remembered his covenant. They cried out, he remembered his covenant. So Michael Vlock, he's uh, an author he, he, he explains, he says, this return to the Abrahamic covenant includes the land which God remembers to give Israel. Just the, as the consequences of Israel's disobedience involve dispersion to other lands, repentance will lead them to restoration in the land of promise. Israel's disobedience results in Israel being taken captive in the land of their enemies, followed by Israel's repentance, which results in Israel returning to the land of promise. The reason there must be restoration of Israel to the promised land is because God is faithful to his promises. If God were to leave Israel in permanent exile, he would break his unconditional covenant with Abraham. This will not happen. So that's the first big passage about restoration. And remember, we're, we're talking about the future of the world, really, as we talk about all this. When I was in seminary, um, I was really bored by eschatology. I was like, oh, man, are we going to talk about white horses and... and um, stuff I don't understand. But I was really immature because so much of the Bible is about eschatology. <laughs> that eschatology means this, the end times, what God's going to do in the end. And not just revelation, but actually like the Old Testament. The Old Testament. Here, it, Moses, even before we really get into much of the rest of the Bible, he's explaining what's going to happen in the future to Israel. They're going to be kicked out of the land, they're going to repent, and they're going to experience a restoration to the land. Here's the second big passage in, in, in uh, the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. And again, he's talked about, he's talked about the exile, and now he's going to talk about what's going to happen after the exile. He says, Deuteronomy 30, uh, verses 1 through 10. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. And return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, 
and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, for there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. Because you remember in Leviticus, the problem was they had an uncircumcised heart. And so he's saying here, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the, this book of the law when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So what does this say is going to happen? says they're going to be sent into exile, right? But they're going to return to the Lord. They're going to obey him and repent. This is going to lead to restoration from captivity. This restoration is going to be a complete reversal. God's going to gather them from all over the earth. God's going to prosper them physically. God's going to circumcise their hearts and transform them. And they're going to love him and obey him willingly. So that is the hope according to Moses. And again, I know this maybe takes some work, but Doing this is going to help you understand. So like in the Bible, this, and maybe this will help you understand even sometimes the way I preach. In the Bible, the authors are making an argument. This is not like just, sometimes when you hear people preach, not to be tough, but it's almost like they're, they're treating the Bible like it's um, something other than it is. Like they're treating it like a systematic, like philosophical or topical book. And so they pull out a passage and they're telling you truths from that passage, but they're not actually explaining the argument the author is making. And so when you hear preaching, you really want to know why is this passage there? Like, what is the author trying to do with this passage? Every passage is trying to do something. He's not just saying random things. If he talks about election in the Bible, he's talking about election for a reason. Like, He's making an argument with the doctrine of election. So you have to understand the argument. And so much of the New Testament and so much of the Bible, the argument that they're making has to do with this, all this kind of stuff that we're talking about. The promises God made to Israel, understanding how God is working all these things out in the future, certainly as we look through the, gospel, through the gospels. But back in Deuteronomy, Moses is he's saying, look, God's bringing you into the land. I'm giving you a chance. I'm pleading with you. This is the covenant. But I know you. I know the problem with your heart. And so what's going to happen is you're going to disobey. God's going to keep his promises. You're going to be sent into exile. But God's still faithful, and he's compassionate. And when you repent, this is going to be the outcome, this complete total restoration. So, um, but what, what are the... what? What does that mean? Exactly. That's like the general. Income the prophets. Income the prophets. That's, this is what's happening with the prophets. The uh, writing prophets, Isaiah through Malachi. What do they say? They say pretty much the same thing as Moses. They say, look, negatively, if you, if you guys keep disobeying, you're going to be sent into exile. 
Everybody's like, oh no, oh no, that's the end, that's the end. They're like, okay, let's go back to Deuteronomy. Let's, let's talk about what happens when you repent. And they say, look, there's going to be a restoration. Look at Jeremiah. This, we'll go to, we're going to some parts of the Bible that are, we don't always go to. But Jeremiah 6.15, I'll just quote a f- couple verses. Jeremiah 6, verse 15. That must be in the wrong one. That's just going to be annoying. Um, that's not the right. This, oh, maybe it's 16. It is 1615. I, I knew that and I should have fixed it. Yes. Um, this is really neat. We'll read verses 14 and 15, but he says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people out of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. So in the Old Testament, the Exodus is kind of the big, it's like the resurrection of the Old Testament. So the Exodus is everywhere in the Old Testament. Even in the Psalms, a lot of the talk is back in the Exodus. But Jeremiah is saying, there's going to be a second Exodus. People aren't going to talk about the first Exodus anymore. They're not going to be going back to that. They're going to be going back to this second Exodus, verse 15. But as the Lord lives, they're not going to say, as the Lord lives who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. For I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Um, And I'll just give you the other verses because we don't really have time. But Jeremiah 30, verse 3 Um, I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers. Ezekiel 38, verse 8. Um, Same thing. Amos chapter 9, verse 14. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. So he says there's going to be a restoration to the land, and he says you're going to be gathered from all the nations where the Lord has scattered you. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 12. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Um, Jeremiah 29, verse 14 and 15 as well. And then he says they're going to be given a new heart. This is a really important one. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Listen to this. Or you can even look this one up if you're fast enough. (laughs) Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So that's kind of the general hope of what's going to happen to Israel in the future. Repentance, restoration, meaning land, prosperity, righteousness. And then, you know, you look at the prophets and they get more specific about how it's all going to work out. Um, first of all, they say there's going to be a king. Israel's going to have a king. So you remember the expectation from 
Genesis, there's going to be a deliverer, there's going to be a ruler from the tribe of Judah, then from 2 Samuel, he's going to be a, of the line of David. Now the prophets come. Listen to Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. These are very familiar verses, but just hear them the way that they're, they're written. <laughs> For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah 11.1, 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. So again, stump, it looks like the line of Jesse has died out, like the tree's been cut down but God is going to actually raise it up again. Micah 5.2, sometime we'll preach maybe Micah 5 for Christmas. Because what happens in Micah 4 to 5 is that basically God says he's going to put the house of David to death. And um, so you have to understand again, exile, you're, that, you're losing all hope. When God says he's going to put the house of David to death, you're like, we are done because he had promised that the hero, he had gotten real specific and was like, the hero is going to come from the line of David. And so then Micah 5, the hope is God's going to resurrect the line of David, basically. Just when you thought it was all over, he's going to resurrect the line of David. And from Bethlehem, there's going to be someone who comes. And why Bethlehem? Because it's like God's going to go back to the beginning. He's going to start, he's going to start this all over again. And do it, do it with someone who actually can accomplish the Davidic covenant. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Amos 9.11, in that day I will raise up the booth of David that's fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruin and rebuild it as in the, in the days of old. So the prophets say, look, these guys were prophesying when there was a king. And they're saying, no, the, we're, it's going to get to the point where it looks like Israel has no king and God's going to send someone from the line of David who can accomplish what we so desperately need. And this king is going to reign. Where is he going to reign? You look at the prophets again, read. He says he's going to reign in Jerusalem. Isaiah 2, 1 through 4. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion, that's Jerusalem, shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn in war anymore. So God's saying there's, you're gonna be sent into exile, but there's hope because I'm gonna, I'm gonna restore you and there's gonna be this great king who comes like I promised and he's gonna rule from a city on the planet, Jerusalem. Isaiah 11:4. but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill uh, the wicked. And on and on and on and on and on. 
Uh, you can read Isaiah 65, verse, uh, verses 17 and, and, and following. Um, that's a beautiful, a beautiful description of, of future Jerusalem. But what's the expectation after exile? They're expecting Israel to be regathered and restored, to be back in the land with a king, with all these physical blessings and a spiritual transformation that results in accomplishing the Abrahamic covenant and all the nations being blessed as a result. And uh, actually, when is that going to happen? If you look at Joel 2, he explains when it's going to happen. He says, basically, it's going to happen when you do what Moses said you needed to do, which is Israel needs to repent. You need to repent. And the restoration is going to happen. Joel chapter 2, what happens... uh, He's been talking about judgment and exile. Then he gives hope and, he's, and he says, look at what, this is what's gonna happen if Israel repents, if you repent. Joel 2, 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, behold, I'm sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea, the stench and foul smell of him will rise for he's done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God for he's given the early rain for your vindication. He's poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who's dwelt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I'm in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there's none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. And so that's a little glimpse of the hope the prophets give for what God's gonna do after exile. There's gonna be this glorious restoration, this fulfillment of what God promised back in Deuteronomy. And the question is, at the end of the Old Testament, has that happened? No, that has not happened. One thing that you have to understand about prophecy is that um, it's not over until the fat lady sings. Like, um, what's a good way of describing it? A prophecy is not fulfilled until all the prophecy is fulfilled. So if I prophesy that um, uh, there's this ship on the ocean and that whole ship is going to be completely destroyed and there's not even going to be a piece of wood left and everybody on the ship is going to die. And uh, somebody comes, they shoot the ship, like half the people on the ship die 
and the woods all broken. Was the prophecy fulfilled? No. You know, then like if the next quarter of the people get sick from scurvy or whatever you get on the, on the, on the ship and, you know, the wood rots and so there's like a few guys hanging onto a plank and they're like, you know, paddling like that. Has the prophecy been fulfilled? No, it, no, it hasn't been fulfilled. And so as we look at these promises of restoration and we look at what happens at the end of the Old Testament, no, Israel's back in the land, but they're still under foreign control. They're, they're, they're still, they're, they're really not, Ezra and Nehemiah, we see by the end of Nehemiah, they're not actually very spiritually doing very well. And, and so that's why when Jesus comes, People are like longing for God to do what he promised. They thought of themselves basically as still in exile. They had, they, had, they had gotten back to the land, sort of, but Rome was over them. And so this is what, this is what they were expecting. They were expecting, they were expecting, if you look just at Luke 1, real quick, I, I, I can't, you know, everything comes back to Luke, but Luke uh, Luke 1, 16 and 17. They're expecting repentance. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Luke 1, 31 through 33, they're expecting a king. You know, this is what the angel says. He will be great. He will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. They were expecting a reversal. Mary is like, uh, he's brought down the mighty from their thrones. He's exalted those of humble estate. They were expecting salvation. Zechariah is like, he's remembered the Abrahamic covenant. And then, uh, then comes the cross and the resurrection. And uh, the disciples are like, what's going on? And you remember what they asked Jesus in Acts 1.6? Maybe turn there. Jesus had been with them 40 days after the resurrection. And you can just, he had been talking about the kingdom of God. And he's about to leave. And look at what they ask him in Acts 1.6. Acts 1.6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Do you, do you understand just this is what they were longing for? All this, this was what they were reading and expecting to happen. Even after the resurrection, they were still, and all that time with Jesus are like, okay, 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 we get it. Is this the time? Is this the time? Is this the time? And Jesus is like, uh, you're, you're, um, you're, not really asking, you're not really asking the right question or you're, that's not something that is for you to know right now. This is what... I need you to know. And really, Acts, the book of Acts is answering what is going on now, what is happening now, um, and why we're here as a church. And actually, kind of the, the cool thing, the reason why we're here as a church is to say God has not forgotten his promises that he made in the Old Testament. He's going to accomplish those. There's still hope. The plan is still going. And God's going to use us to call Israel one day to repentance so that all these other things even kick in. And even in Acts 2, that's why uh, we'll get there when we get to Acts someday. This is part of why Peter quotes Joel. 
Because he's, is he talking to Gentiles in, in, in uh, Acts 2? People like us? No. He's talking to Jewish people. And he's like, guys, if you will repent, if you will repent, Joel 2 is going to happen. And we're already starting to see some of the drips and drabs of that. But of course, Israel didn't repent. Didn't repent. And so that's part of why we're not seeing the rest of Joel 2 happening right now. We're kind of in this in-between time. Hopefully that, that makes sense. Um, <laughs> that's a lot, I know. If not, what I'd love you to do is just look at this quick summary of the Old Testament um, given by Michael, Michael Vlock. Um, he, uh, I don't know how many points he has, but I think I can read this in three minutes. So let me read it in three minutes. I'm a little bit over. I'll go fast, but just so I know you got a chance to read it. But so this is the Old Testament. Sometimes I get concerned. I'm like, did I make sense? I want to make sure I make sense. This makes sense. I know this makes sense. So I'm going to read it. This is a quick summary of the Old Testament. God as sovereign and universal king creates a universe and is king over all creation. God creates man in his own image as a son and king so man can represent God on the earth and rule over creation on, be on his behalf for his glory. Man fails his task of ruling the creation for God's glory by sinning against his creator. The vice regent rebels against the king. The fall results in a cursed creation in which man is subject to death, the creation is subject to futility, and Satan usurps authority. God promises a future savior, a Satan crusher and curse remover from the seed of the woman who will save man and restore creation. God unleashes a global flood to judge mankind, but since God has promised a savior, he chooses Noah as the means to keep mankind preserved, the animal kingdom alive, and God's kingdom purposes intact. Through the covenant he makes with Noah, God promises stability of nature as a platform for carrying out his kingdom plans. Through the Tower of Babel incident, God institutes ethnic diversity and nations to carry out his original plan for man to multiply and fill the earth. God's plan for restoration in a worldwide kingdom is mediated through Abraham via the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham and the developing people of Israel will be the vehicles for blessing the nations of the earth. Through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people of the kingdom program grow in number in Egypt where eventually they become enslaved. Two more minutes. God rescues his people, Israel, so they can be a kingdom of priests and light to other nations. Israel with its promised land is the platform through which God will bless the other nations. The Mosaic Covenant is the means through which Israel could be set apart for God's purposes and the way the nation could stay connected to the promises of the Abrahamic Covenant. Israel's promised spiritual and physical blessings for keeping the Mosaic Covenant and curses and dispersion for disobeying the Mosaic Covenant. God predicts Israel will possess the land of promise only to be dispersed because of covenant disobedience. This will be followed by a restoration of Israel from the nations with both spiritual and physical prosperity. The basis of this restoration will be a circumcised heart. God's kingdom on earth is mediated through Moses and then Joshua and then through the judges and then eventually kings of Israel. With the Davidic covenant, God promises David an eternal kingdom for Israel through David's descendants with physical blessings and rest from enemies. This covenant will also bring blessings to all mankind. Israel flourishes under David and then Solomon with the kingdom promises of the land, seed, and international blessings being on the verge of fulfillment. Solomon's idolatry puts the kingdom of Israel on a trajectory that eventually leads to dispersion, exile. The tribes of Israel are taken captive by Assyria and Babylon. The glory of the God departs from the temple, signifying the end of the mediatorial kingdom in Israel. 
With the end of the kingdom in Israel, the prophets become the spokespersons for God to Israel, and they proclaim both judgment for covenant disobedience and a future restoration in a kingdom under a Davidic leader. Because of Israel's failure to be a kingdom of priests for God's glory, God will raise up the ultimate Israelite, a servant who will restore the nation Israel and bring blessing to the Gentiles. God will mediate a new covenant through Israel that grants a new heart and indwelling spirit to God's people so they will obey and allow God's people to experience kingdom blessings. The prophets reveal a coming day of the Lord when God will judge the nations of the earth and purge his people Israel. This will be followed by the Davidic kingdom on earth centered in Jerusalem under the Messiah in which both Israel and the nations will be God's people. The Old Testament ends with the expectation that God will fulfill his kingdom promises while his people wait for deliverance. And that is a pretty amazing summary, the one that Michael Vlock gave there, of uh, pretty much the entire Old Testament. Um, Does that make sense to you? Any questions or thoughts or comments? Well, yes, I'm sure for both, but there is a specific promise of God fulfilling his promises and completing that plan he started and proving that he can accomplish what he set out to accomplish with Jesus ruling from Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom. Yeah. Followed by a final defeat of all his enemies and the new heavens and the new earth forever. So that he's got purposes he wants to fulfill that and, and things he wants to demonstrate through himself that only a nation can do with a king and with politics. We're not a nation. We're, not a, we're a church. We, he's got things he's doing through us that he's demonstrating about himself. So Israel and the church, there's some things that are similar about us, and there are some things that are different about us. And God's using both Israel and the church to, uh, he's going to use Israel and the church to put his glory on full display. All right, cool. The New Testament then, that, now that, part of why we go through all that is you want to have that in mind as you read the New Testament. So like books like Romans and Galatians and, and Luke even, they're all going to come into play when you realize what people were expecting. Because it's like, huh, this, is, this is, seems weird. Like I, I, don't, I don't see all the, I see Gentiles, but not, this, this thing called the church, what is it? Like, where did this come from? What is this thing doing? Um, God in the Old Testament through Israel was, he was, you know, he was using Israel for the nations. But like we said, they were basically saying, Israel was saying, come, come, come to us and be like us. And then you can know our God. And so then you had to basically become an Israelite and get circumcised. And uh, then you could experience the blessings along with Israel. Now in the New Testament, Paul's like, no, 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 no. Don't become, don't get circumcised. You don't have to, you don't have to become an Israelite. And you, we should go. We need to go to the nations. And so you're like, oh, what's, what's going on? Welcome to the New Testament. Like that's part of what they're writing to help us under, understand how that all fits together. And it's, it's hard, but it's also exciting. If you're interested in, like, the whole future history of the world, then it's exciting, you know. <laughs> um, it can be exciting, but it takes, it takes work to get our hearts. A lot of times 
I'm more excited about a bunch of guys running around in shorts, shooting a ball through a hoop than I am what actually matters. And so uh, that's just because we're humans who are not very smart sometimes <laughs> and we need God's help. All right. Thanks, God. Let me, let me I got to close in prayer. Father, uh, we do uh, thank you 